0: Well, good morning. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, I would look forward to doing that at some point. Um, stick around, and hopefully we can connect. And if you ever want to talk to me, come on up to me afterward, and I'd love to connect with you. If you are new to Park or just tuning in online, we are walking through the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth 2,000 years ago. A church gathered on a different continent, speaking a different language and a completely different culture, but with many applicable things to us today. Last night, as I was reviewing the passage for today and kind of just looking over my message, um, I was feeling like anxiety about the introduction, right? Because public speakers say, you have to catch people in the first 30 seconds, and if you don't, your entire talk is a lost cause. That's a lot of pressure, right, for the first 30 seconds, when all I did was get up and say, hello, my name is Andrew whatever, right? I totally failed the introduction. So the next 40 minutes, you can discard. I guess I lost your attention already, right? So I was feeling anxiety about that, this, this like 30-second intro, and, and I know what the text says, and I, I kind of had my main stuff figured out, thank the Lord, before Saturday night, right? But I'm trying to review it and trying to think through things, and I was listening to music as I was doing that last night, and this new song from, a, from an artist called Lovekin came up. It's called Obsession with Eyes, Obsession with eyes is the name of the song. And, and he sings, defined by what's on the outside, the way I look in the mirror, the kinds of songs that I write, defined by how many likes I have a, an obsession with eyes that I've been trying to fight. And as I was thinking about my introduction and thinking about the sermon, this song hit me, and, and I'm not trying to write a song but I applied it to myself, the kinds of sermons that I like, that I write, right? And just this internal battle that we have about, do, do people like my content? Do people like my existence? Do people like what I post? Do people like what I create? Do people like what I share? My eyes are constantly on the outlook for what other people are doing, what other people are saying, and then I'm constantly, right? So, so, in obsession with eyes, right? Our eyes are always open, observing, comparing. And then we're also often being observed and compared. And so this song hit me last night as I was thinking about my intro. It says that the songs that I write, and for me, it 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 convicted me about the sermons that I write. Am I obsessed with likes about the sermons that I write? And then and then it, it hit me, it doesn't just apply to like a public musician. I love that he wrote this, that he's wrestling with this like temptation to wanting to be liked for the songs that he writes, and, and it doesn't just apply to a pastor wrestling with the temptation for wanting to be liked for the sermon content that you deliver, but it applies to all of us, right? You may not be a musician, you may not be a pastor, but maybe it applies to the emails that you write, Like, you spend way too much time trying to perfectly craft and word your email so that the other person thinks well of you. Maybe it applies to the meals that you make for people on the meal train, right? Like, you sign up, new mom in the church, or somebody in the hospital in the church, you want to serve them, and you you think, okay, what meal can I bring that will be perfect, right? I want to outdo all the other meals. Maybe it applies to the car that you drive. Maybe it applies to the Kids that you have, and the the obedience or the impression that other people have about your children. Maybe it applies to the spouse that you have or that you desire to have. Whatever it is, there's things that you and I wrestle with these false senses of identity. We want other people to see us through this certain lens, we want to project ourselves through a certain lens. Basil Pennington, a, a Catholic monastic father wrote this in his book called True Self, False Self. He says the false self is an identity based on what you have, what you do, and what others think about you. In stark contrast to this is the true self, which is who we are before God and in God. It's Christ living in us. This idea of false self it's so this identity that, that we build, some of us are, are consciously aware of it, others are, are unaware of it, it's more of a subconscious thing, but it's this identity that we build based off of things that we have, based off of things that we do, or based off of what other people think about us. And this is just the world that we live in, right? You meet somebody, you share your name, and then what's the next question? What do you do? Because we identify ourselves by what we do, we identify others by what we do, and in our text today, the Apostle Paul is going to give us a stern and needed reminder for you and I to embrace our calling in Jesus, our identity in Jesus, and when we do that, we can accept our status in life or our station in life. Whatever like the worldly status or the worldly identification of us is, we can accept that When we press into who we are in Jesus, as we go through the book of 1 Corinthians, that's what we're seeing over and over and over again, that the human heart is full of idols, things that we worship more than God. Some of these things are good gifts from God, but we tend to elevate them, and we tend to worship them, and then we tend to attach our identities to them. And the Apostle Paul is saying, in the midst of discovering your human idols, there's one way to fight them. It's with your gospel identity, with your new identity in Jesus. And so today in our text, he's going to give us a great reminder about this. Kind of right in the middle of the book, he's going to remind us about our calling in Jesus. And so some of you think that I'm going to preach specifically about singleness this morning and being unmarried. I'm sorry if I sold that to you last week when I talked about marriage and sex in marriage. The singleness talk is actually coming next week, so sorry for false communication there. Uh, We are going to talk about being single and unmarried a little bit this morning, but then next week will be a greater follow-up to that. Paul kind of pauses in the midst of his talk about sex to remind us about identity. So I'm going to ask you to stand as I read our text for today. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 17-24. 1 Corinthians seven, seventeen 17-24. The Apostle Paul writes, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Lord, would you give us an increased sense of peace this morning about our calling and about our status? Lord, may we embrace the life that you've called us to. May we grow into and flourish in whatever status of life we are in. Lord, we ask these things for your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, the big idea this morning of this text is that embracing your call in life allows you to make peace with your status in life. See, so much of our anxiety in life comes from comparison or it comes from trying to perpetually increase or improve our status in life, right? If you're single, you want to be married. If you're married, maybe you want to have kids. If you have kids, maybe you wish you didn't have kids. Sorry, kids. Every now and then, parents have that thought for a brief fleeting moment, If you're in a job on the lower level, you want to get a promotion, you want to advance your career, so much of our life has to do with increasing, improving, or changing status in life. In this comparison game, these expectations, they're never-ending, and they're soul-crushing, and we deal with this on a consistent basis. Paul here is writing to the church in, in Corinth. 2,000 years ago, same thing is happening in this church. There's, there's a bunch of people who have become Christians in the last couple of years. In Acts chapter 18, you can read about Paul going into the city of Corinth and proclaiming the gospel, teaching that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah and that in him is salvation, forgiveness of sins, and new life. And people are coming to Christ. They're becoming Christians. They're placing his, their faith in Jesus, and they're joining the church and, and we've, got a, we've got a mixed bag of church attendees, right? You've got some Jews who have become Christians. You've got some Gentile pagans who have become Christians. You've got people who speak different languages, people from different cultural backgrounds, people with different expectations. And they're joining this church. And in the midst of this community, there's the measuring up of one another. You ever been in a community where, where you're measuring, you're sizing other people up? Or maybe you feel like you're being measured or sized up by other people? Especially if you became a Christian later in life and then someone invited you to a church and you walked in and you were like, I guess I have to change. I can't quite dress that way. I can't quite wear a hat. You can wear a hat in church, by the way. Um, but maybe you walked into a church and you felt this, wow, is this allowed? Is this acceptable? There's, there's this measuring up, this sizing up that's happening here in Corinth. They're trying to figure out what does it look like for us to live our lives following Jesus? And there's all this status seeking and status comparison in the church. And in the middle of this letter, Paul pauses to remind us to embrace our calling in Christ. That's the foundation for the Christian. If we forget our calling, we will get stuck in this comparison game. We will get stuck in coveting what other people have, whether it's material things or whether it's perceived life status. And so Paul has already walked us through some false statuses that are void of peace. And so I'm going to do a little review this morning. We're going to talk about some life statuses that are void of peace. And then we're going to look at our call in Christ, our fixed identity. Right, so there's false identities that we can take on, that we can pursue, that that we can attach to ourselves, and then there's a fixed identity that we have in Christ. Let's do a little bit of review this morning before we get more specifically into the content of the passage I just read. A little bit of review is that, if you remember, if you were here earlier on, chapters 1 through 4, Paul is talking about power and intellect. And he's making the point that a life status built off of power or intellect is void of peace. And we're not going to go back and and read these texts, but just so you know, if you're new to the church and you weren't with us when we preached through chapters 1 through 4, in this culture, in this context, there were people seeking status by power, right? They wanted to be on the powerful side of politics or the powerful side of religion. They wanted to be in the majority. That's a temptation that we have today. One of our statuses is to, to, to identify with a certain political party or to identify with a certain theological tribe. We perceive a, a, a group who has power Or or maybe they're a minority, maybe they're not the majority, but as a minority, they're growing and they have power, and it feels good to, to find status and identity with that group. And Paul, in the first four chapters, has been saying that's void of peace. As a follower of Christ, your status in the world is actually weak. Remember your Messiah? Remember your Savior? Your King? He was crucified on a Roman cross. The political powers crucified him. Your identity is not that of power. Your identity is that of weakness. And so don't be swayed to take on this false identity of power. Also, intellect. In this culture, in this context, we have Greeks and Jews and and the Roman government, right? This is kind of the context of the church in Corinth. And so the Greeks were all about intellect and rhetoric They loved speech. They loved dialogue. They loved to go to amphitheaters and listen to philosophers and just blow their mind with all of their intellect. And Paul has spent the first four chapters teaching us that that's a a status that's void of peace because intellect is never satisfied. Knowledge is never satisfied. You can never fully attain it. And there's always going to be somebody smarter or there's always going to be a counterpoint. And so Paul has spent four chapters reminding us that life status of power and intellect is void of peace. Be careful to try and find your identity among the powerful or among the intellectual. And then in chapters 5 through 6, he moves on to talk about the, the, the life status void of peace that is sexual freedom. Right? This is where we've spent the last couple weeks talking about sexual freedom in chapters 5 and chapter 6. He's, he's reminding the church that, that they live in a culture, they live in a world of people who are identified by sexuality. Sex becomes everything to them, whether they're single, whether they're married. There was a, there was a sexually promiscuous culture in Corinth, like if you think our culture is bad. They had temple open, acceptable temple prostitution in Corinth, and the people in the church were going to visit temple prostitutes. And that was the culture that this church was birthed out of. And in that culture, Paul is reminding them, don't find your identity in your sexuality. We spent an entire Sunday talking about this a few weeks ago. If you missed it, you can go back and listen to that sermon. This is a review, a reminder that that there's a false identity that we can take on related to our sexuality, and Paul here is warning us, be careful of that status, because sexuality is not deeply, ultimately fulfilling. And then he moves into chapter 7, which is what we're in, and kind of the big point of all of chapter 7 is relational status. He is teaching us in chapter 7 that, that regardless of your relational status, it's void of peace. If you're single, and this is what we're going to get at more next week and what he hinted at last week, if you're single and desiring to be married, this is a, a point in time for you to remember that marriage does not fix your longing for companionship. Marriage does not fill you. Marriage does not bring you peace. Ask a married person. It may be a piece of your piece, but it's not the whole puzzle, right? Marriage brings satisfaction. Marriage brings companionship, but there's plenty of marriages who are struggling. There's plenty of married people who who feel alone and feel single in their marriage. There's plenty of married people who want to be single. There are married people who have gotten divorced because it didn't work out. Marriage is not a, a, it doesn't fill the God-shaped hole in your life. Contrary to Jerry Maguire, a spouse does not complete you, right? And if you're married, you need to be reminded that that your married status doesn't complete you. Maybe you have a great marriage. Maybe God has blessed it. Maybe your spouse is your deep companion. That's great, but don't make your spouse an idol. Paul here in chapter 7 is teaching the church to be careful of this drift towards finding your identity in your relational status, whether you're single or married, whether you're dating, whatever your relational status is. Related to friends, related to parents, related to children, be careful about finding your identity in your relational status because human relationships oftentimes fail you. And even if they don't fail you, they don't adequately fill you. They're a gift of God but they aren't an ultimate gift and when you make a relational status an ultimate gift it becomes an idol and it leaves you wanting that's the entire context of chapter 7 and then he so that's like the first 16 verses that we covered last week and then the last verses 25 through 40 which we're going to cover next week goes deeper into the status of marriage and singleness and right here in the midst of those two kind of the, the married and the unmarried st- relational statuses, right? Those are the two main relational statuses that Paul is dealing with here in chapter 7, married and unmarried. And right in the middle of talking about the married and the unmarried, he pauses here to remind us, look at verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. This is a universal rule for the people of God, that God has assigned you a certain, a certain life status. And that status can change, right? Sometimes you're singled and, single, and when you're single, you, you press into that relational status for the glory of God, for the good of others, and for, for the advancement of the gospel. When you're married, you press into that relational status for the glory of God, for the good of your spouse and family, and for the advancement of the gospel. So statuses change and and our assignments in life can change, but Paul is saying, and this is the main point of verses 17 through 24, he says, "Lead the life that the Lord has assigned you. Find peace in your life status." Stop comparing, stop coveting. This is the call to the Christian and that's related to relational status. And then he, he moves into talking about two other false identities or false statuses, statuses that are void of peace that, that we need to talk about here in this passage that we just read. One is relation, or, or religious status. So in verse 18 through 20, he talks about this, this religious status. Let me read it for you again. He says, Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised, and and you'll notice as we read this passage, he uses the word called eight times, and so we're going to talk about what it means to be called in a minute. Keep in mind, he's, he's worried about our calling, because it's our calling that impacts our living. If you lose sight of your call, the way that you live gets thrown out of whack. He says, "...was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision." If you don't know what circumcision is, go home and ask your parents. <laughs> if you don't have parents to go home and ask, read the Bible and you'll figure it out. Um, I, I, I trust most of us to know what it is. Um, and, and so in, in the Hebrew context, God had called his people to circumcision. It was an outside mark that they belonged to God. It was the removal of the foreskin from the penis, for those of you who don't know. And this is a mark that God called his people to bear to identify with him. And there were some practical reasons, like if they were tempted to go to to see a temple prostitute, that temple prostitute would notice that this man is is a Hebrew. He's not a Gentile. You shouldn't be here. Your God doesn't doesn't allow you to go to the temple prostitute. You're being unfaithful to your God. It was like this, this, this accountability mark for the people of God. But now in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, this outward mark no longer, is no longer necessary. It's not a command from God. And so that's what Paul is teaching here. He's saying, was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Were, are you from, from Jewish origin? Are you among the Hebrews? Did you grow up in a culture, a religious culture, where circumcision was the norm? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. It's fine. You can't put your foreskin back on. That's what the Bible's saying. Don't worry about it. We're not going to do a reverse surgery. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? So are you, a, are you a Gentile, a Greek, who wasn't circumcised on the eighth day? Let him not seek circumcision. You don't have to now take the, the religious status of the Old Testament and apply it to the New Covenant. Religious status isn't a thing that you ought to find your identity in any longer. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. See, Paul here is teaching the church that that as you become a Christian, there's all these temptations to conform to a certain religious or church culture. To start identifying yourself among a certain theological tribe or among a certain style of worship or in a certain church building or whatever it is, right? Think through your life, whether you grew up in a Christian church environment or whether you became a Christian later on. Once you started being around Christians and around a certain church, there were certain religious markers that those groups of people that those churches had and, and you felt pressure, am I supposed to do this? Am I supposed to dress like that? Am I supposed to carry this type of Bible? Am I supposed to have a leather-bound zipper case with it? Am I supposed to do my devos in the morning? Am I supposed to only listen to this kind of music? There's all these different markers, right? This was happening here in the church. It was a little more intimate marker. It related to circumcision, but it applied to so much more. And Paul here is saying that your religious status is void of giving you peace. You can't find peace in your religious status. You can conform perfectly to the Christian culture that you're a part of, and that's not going to give you peace. It may give you acceptability among that group, but it's not going to give you peace with God. You don't find peace with God by doing what the Christians around you do. You find peace with God by pressing into what Jesus has done and who he's made you. And so Paul is warning them to not put their identity in their religious status, but rather keeping the commandments of God, like he says in verse 19. In verse 20, he says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. You you don't have to change the external appearance. Remember in chapter five, verse 12, Paul said, what do we have to do with judging the outsiders? And Jesus says, don't judge. In, In John chapter seven, Verse 24, or maybe it's 34, Jesus says, Don't judge by the outward appearance. And Paul here is saying that, that there's this temptation in the church and in the Christian to start to find their identity by their religious status and fight that temptation. Rather, keep the commands of God. Keep the commands of God. Keep the commands of God. What are they? Love God and love neighbor. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's not a dress code when you enter a church. It's not a, not a certain way to talk. It's not certain rules about food and drink. It's not certain relational statuses. It's not certain religious markers keeping the commands of God is to love God and love neighbor. And so that's what Paul is reminding us here, that, that finding your identity in your religious status is void of peace. It'll never satisfy. And then the last one that he deals with here is worldly freedom, that, that seeking worldly freedom, finding a status of being free in the eyes of the world, that's also void of peace. And he uses a little more intense um, parallel here in, in, in common culturally for them. He talks about slavery. Look at verse 21. He says, were you a bondservant? That word bondservant is doulos in the Greek. It, it means slave. Some translations use that word differently, bondservant, um, to try and kind of lighten the sting of the word slave. We'll talk about slavery as we go, but let's get the context of this first. He says, were you a bondservant when called? Do not, do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So he's saying, if you were a slave when you were called to Christ, don't be concerned about it. That's not your biggest issue. Now, as I say that even, this slavery in this context was different than the slavery that we're familiar with. The the slavery in America where it was race-based, there was a whole different culture, and some of the slavery in the first century was was awful, on par with slavery that we're familiar with here in America. Um, Some of it was more like, like, employee-employer relationship. And so there's a whole long conversation about slavery coming out of this passage. What you need to know is that the Bible doesn't condone slavery. It doesn't teach slavery. Christians ought to fight against slavery. No human being should own another person. That's something that especially the white evangelical church in America has to reckon with and repent of because in the past, the majority of white evangelical churches believed that it was okay and actually God ordained And there's a ton of examples from speeches of founding fathers that show that. And so we need to deal with that. We need to repent of that. That's a side conversation that we're not going to have here this morning. But the point here that Paul is making is that in this church, remember, there are people in this church who were slaves of others, and there were people in this church who may have owned slaves, Primarily, they were, they were probably more so slaves than they were slave owners because most of the early Christians were on the lower level of status, income, wealth, power, intellect. Most of them were diseased and despised in the eyes of the world. And so he's saying, were you a bondservant, were you a slave when you were called, when you became a Christian, when you placed your faith in Christ? Do not be concerned about it. But he does say, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Take the opportunity, live as a freedman, get out of slavery if you can. And then verse 22, he says, For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. He's saying, regardless of your earthly status whether you're a slave, a bondservant of another, if you're in Jesus, you've been set free. That is your eternal status. That is your identity in Jesus. You're free. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves to another human master. We're no longer slaves to a political party. We're no longer slaves to a sexual identity. We're no longer slaves to to the endless search for a change of relational status. We've been set free. And then in the middle of verse 22, he says, Likewise, he who is a slave when called is a bondservant of Christ. So regardless of your worldly status in relation to freedom, you're now a slave, a bondservant of Jesus. That's your identity. That's your status as a Christ follower. Verse 23, he says, You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So here Paul is actually saying that that men shouldn't own men. There shouldn't be slavery. You shouldn't shouldn't go in debt to another human being and and be enslaved by them because sometimes in this context people would sell themselves into slavery. He's saying, don't become a slave of another person because you're owned by God. And if you do own another person, set them free because they're owned by God, not by you. You were bought with a price. Do not become a bondservant of men. And then verse 24 he says, so brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. And so he comes back to this idea of calling, right? And so he's dealt with, dealt with like these worldly statuses that are void of peace, power and intellect, sexual freedom, relational status, religious status, and worldly freedom. And then he says, press into your calling in God. Brothers, whatever condition each was when he was called, let him remain there. And, and Paul has used this word called throughout, the, throughout this letter. Let's go back to chapter 1 and look at how he first uses it. He, he reminds us to press into our call in Christ. This is our fixed identity. Right? All these other identities are false identities that can change and that can crush us. But in Jesus, we have a fixed identity which doesn't change. And the first one is that we're saints who are in community with one another and with Jesus himself. Look at First Corinthians 1 2 through 9. Actually, let's start at verse 1. Paul, the apostle who's writing this letter, called. See how he uses the word called there? the first word. Called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And our brother Sassanis. To so the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called. To be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. See, we have been called saints. Our identity now, our fixed identity is that we've been called out of the world. We've been called to Jesus. We are considered saints in the eyes of God because who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And then we've been united to one another in the family of God. He goes on to make that point he says i give thanks to my god always for you because of the grace of god that was given you in christ jesus that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about christ was confirmed among you so that so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our lord jesus christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our lord jesus god is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son jesus christ our lord your identity is that of a saint who is surrounded by a community of brothers and sisters who love jesus and you have fellowship with jesus christ the son of god you see that right there in the text it's an amazing fixed status for the people of god that frees you from being controlled by these false identities of the world if you're struggling with your identity in the world and these false identities, you need to press into the call of God, this fixed identity that you have. Now, let me just pause for a second. And and this word called has been used and abused in many church circles, right? People say, God called me to do this. God called me to be a pastor. God called me to marry you. Always be careful of that one. "God, God called me here. God called me there. And sometimes it can be used as a trump card in the community, where people are like, I'm not really sure. Have you prayed about that? Have we talked about that? And what you need to see here is that in the context of this letter, when Paul writes about being called, it's first about your identity, being called into Jesus. It's not about being called to do something for him. It's about being called to be in him. Out of that flows different calls, right? like in chapter 7, verse 17, kind of this core verse for today is that each of you should live the life that God assigned to you when you were called. Out of your calling in Jesus, your identity in Jesus will be a certain outworking of that call, and it will be different for all of us. Some will be missionaries, some will be pastors, some will be architects, some will be teachers, some will be stay-at-home parents, whatever it is. It's different for all of us. But he's saying if if you aren't firm on your calling in Jesus, this this horizontal call, or this vertical calling in Jesus, your horizontal calling, your horizontal identity will be out of whack. So press into your call in Jesus. And he he moves on here to remind us that our calling in Jesus, our fixed identity, is that of being righteous, sanctified, redeemed, and washed. Look at chapter 1, verse 24. He says, But to those who are called... Both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Your status was pretty low. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Your status in life means nothing. Your calling in Christ means everything. Embrace your calling in Christ. And and here's the benefit of it. Verse 30. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Flip over to chapter 6, verse 11. It says, and such were some of you, and he's just listed a whole list of sin, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's your new identity. That's your calling. You've been made righteous. You've been sanctified. You've been redeemed. You've been washed. And then the last piece of our fixed identity here that he gives us in our passage for this morning is that we are bondservants of Christ who have been bought with a price. That's what you've been called to, Christian. And if you're a non-Christian here this morning, considering the things of Jesus, count the costs. Because the Bible is calling you to be a slave or a bondservant of a master whose name is Jesus. You don't get to call the shots in your life any longer. But also, in that, you get the freedom of not being controlled by the world, not being identified by the identifying markers of the world or the religious system. You're free in Jesus as you're, as you're bound to him, as you're enslaved to Jesus, your Lord and Master, you're free from all the things in life that tend to push you around, that tend to confuse you, that tend to lack you finding true and sustained peace. And so this morning, I, I want you to just reflect on these two questions. The worship team is going to come back up and lead us into a song of reflection. And, and I want you to take communion on your own where you're at this morning being reminded of your identity in Jesus. And as you do, ask yourself these two questions. What false identity of the world do you need to repent of? We all have them. Do some soul searching, some self-reflection to figure out where, where am I trying to find my identity other than Jesus? And, and then just bring it into the light. Repent of it. And then what fixed identity in Christ do you need to receive? As you think about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and who you are in him, what do you need to receive from God. There's this this transaction every time we engage with God that leads to transformation. The transaction is we repent of our sin and receive what he's given us. And that transaction leads to transformation where you and I can live lives set free from the standards and the statuses of the world. Let me pray. The worship team is going to come and lead as you take some time to reflect and take communion. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. I thank you that you have called us to yourself, that, that we are bondservants of yours. Lord, may we embrace that identity. May we embrace our call in you. And in that, may we willingly accept whatever status in life we have, Lord, as this passage teaches us to do, may may we lead the life that you have assigned to us. Not longing for a different life, not longing for someone else's life. Lord, may we, in whatever condition we were called, may we remain in it for your glory, for the good of those that we do life with in the advancement of your gospel. This morning, as we reflect and take communion, may you speak to us, each one of us individually, what we need to hear. Lord, may we have the transaction of repenting and receiving and may we have the the transformation that results from it in your name we